This is a spoiler warning. We are going to spoil the episodes discussed in the show. It's also a free-flowing discussion. We're going to spoil pretty much most of the show aired to date. Uh, we'll do our best not to spoil any of the big finish range other than the episode that's discussed, but you are warned. Problem is, Perry, we are faced with a conundrum wrapped up in a dilemma. Hello and welcome to The Twin Dilemma, a Doctor Who fan podcast. In each episode, we watch one new Who and one classic and tell you indisputably, undoubtedly, which is best. Those are the twins, that's The Dilemma, and I'm your co-host, Edward Grove. And I am your co-host, Edward Grove. Oh my god. Don't believe his lies. Guys, I'm the real Edward Grove. That is Fenric Lamar, and our theme today is doppelgangers. Oh, so that's why I was doing the Edward Grove thing. It was a bit. It's a little bit we planned. Yeah. That's right. We talked about it beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was I was just honestly confused about who I was. For oh, uh, that's right. It's an existential crisis you planned. We talked about that before, too. My life is also crumbling apart around me. <laughs> no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> Please visit my GoFundMe page. <laughs> but yes, today's theme is doppelgangers, meaning we're discussing dangerous doubles that have appeared throughout the show. And we'll start this week off with our classic, The Enemy of the World. It's just so astonishing you... Ah, Salamander. Do you see what I mean? But surely you know how alike you are after all. Salamander is a world figure. Well, well my friends and I, we've, we've been out of touch uh, of civilization for a little while. We're, uh, we're visitors, so to speak, um, on ice, shall we say. Ramon Salamander is not only a powerful and magnanimous world leader, he also happens to be blessed with the same good looks as the second doctor. But it's not all sunshine and smiles in this adventure written by David Whitaker. In fact, the world is in danger of slowly falling completely under Salamander's control. So now it's up to the Doctor to go undercover as fascists look alike to unearth his dark secrets. So the enemy of the world. Fenric Lamar, what do you think? I really like this episode in theory. <laughs> uh, I think that the concept's really great. I think that Pat Troughton shines in this episode. I think it's a collection of superb moments surrounded by some thick, wading pools of bullshit. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's an episode that is really, it's designed for Pat Troughton to shine in it. You know, it literally, they gave him another part. Yeah. Let me ask you. So he does like a, what's the Mexican version of a blackface? <laughs> Mexican face. <laughs> Mexican face. On a scale of like one to ten, how racist would you put this episode? I don't think his depiction of a Mexican character relies on any Mexican stereotypes or is in any way derisive. Well, there is like one, I don't know if you call it a stereotype, but he doesn't do the greatest Mexican accent. And a lot of no. times to make up for it, he does this thing where he goes like, oh, you see that? Hey? He does that like hey <laughs> noise, which is like a, a little bit stereotyping. I mean, not really. It's just a sound. <laughs> However, he does a great job transforming into an entirely different person. There will be disaster in this zone. I cannot stop the disaster. But I can come to the aid of this zone when it's happened. And take over. I see. The zone would be yours. Oh, ours, Federer, ours. It's a partnership I'm offering you. Either you have half of everything, 
or you have nothing. You can really see that, like, when Patron is being Salamander, his whole facial posture, like the way the musculature of his face rests, is different. When I watched this, I wanted to be like, is it just makeup? Did they give him like different eyebrows and is that what it is? But really it is. He just does a completely different person. That moment towards the end of part one, where he basically has two minutes to decide, am I going to impersonate Salamander or am I going to be arrested yes. for being a potential Salamander impersonator? Yes. A Salamander impersonator, as the doctor <laughs> aspired. He was a failed gecko impersonator. <laughs> I think that's one of the greatest moments in classic. I think that that's a plot point that really they don't try very often. Just sudden tension. That's one thing this episode is very good at. I think I probably like this episode a bit more than you do. There are a number of moments where it's able to achieve things in a way where it actually accomplishes a level of genuine tension or drama that's legitimately above average for the classic series. I honestly think that if you cut out two parts of this episode, if you cut it down to a four-parter, it might be one of my favorite episodes of classic. You're, you're cutting way ahead to like, what was going to be one of my last questions for you, which is, <laughs> does it need to be a six-parter? I think it would be way cooler if in part one, in that moment, he's suddenly tossed into this world and he has to impersonate Salamander or else, I don't know, he'll be put to death. If that was really the jumping off point of the story, if then he was like wished away and now he has to try and investigate Salamander from the inside while also trying to avoid Salamander. But it's not really, that's not really the story. I agree. He spends about another two parts just deciding whether he wants to impersonate Salamander. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because I think it does a genuinely good job of staying entertaining by kind of keeping plates spinning. But when you actually look at the flow of the story... It's very circuitous and for no real reason. Fortunately, the other stuff that's happening is pretty interesting. It's not the general obvious filler of classic. The one aspect of it that really felt like, okay, this is straight up dialogue that you would just easily, you'd pull this whole character out is uh, Griffith the chef. Oh, yeah. Well, he was a little bit of comic relief, I guess. A little bit of painfully unsuccessful comic relief. First course interrupted by bomb explosion. Second course affected by earthquakes. Third course ruined by interference in the kitchen. I'm going out for a walk. It'll probably rain. Basically every scene, he just walks out of the kitchen at the end. Yeah, he does that a lot. That's his job. He, he makes like a shitty joke, seems depressed, and then he walks off seemingly to hang himself. <laughs> what I think is weird about this episode is it loads you up with characters. Yes. There are so many characters in this. So many of them have just like a one-word future-sounding name. Yeah. Like, how about Benick to throw one at you? So, Benick looks like an inbred Vulcan. <laughs> Benick looks like he's going to turn to the camera at some point and be like, I feel absolutely nothing about my sister. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I don't think you can do a bowl cut and also like a deep V-neck at the same time. <laughs> The 60s were a weird time. Yeah. Oh, and also, it, like, his ears put Christopher Eccleston to shame. <laughs> he has this really weird moment. I think Jamie says to him, You must have been a nasty little boy. Oh, I was. But I had a very enjoyable childhood. I love his resolution because it's just like, he sort of is going to get his comeuppance and then he starts start sniveling and then never seen again. <laughs> What I think is weird about like characters like that, you know, they, they throw so many of them at you that they don't have enough for Jamie and Vicky to do. Victoria, in particular, 
has nothing to do. She literally, the big plot line for her is stick the woman in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was a little bit like, come on. Also, she's mad stoked about it. She's like, oh, really? I've got a recipe. I can't wait to be in the kitchen. Faria, the food taster, she has some like beats in the actual political storyline here that they could have given to Victoria. I did like Faria, though. She was a a good actress. And it was surprising and nice to see, you know, a person of color. racism. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. In a a 1960s Doctor Who show. But yeah, it's funny because Victoria is so useless, Astrid actually has a line about it. The boy is very confident. The girl, not so much. (laughs) Which honestly is pretty much what I feel about Victoria as a whole. All the time, <laughs> yeah. But it was very funny to hear someone in the show be like, I'll write her off soon. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting that the cliffhangers in this six-part story are unlike any cliffhangers you will ever see before or after in classic. Yeah. There's almost no physical peril. In fact, five out of five cliffhangers are just close-ups on people's faces. One of my favorite moments in the episode, actually, Donald Bruce, it's the, the, the guy who takes over for Giles. He walks in and sees the doctor first impersonating Salamander. It cuts to a close-up of his face. And I actually really like the actor in this episode, and I think he does a good job. I like his character. I think he's written sort of sympathetically. It's like he behaves more reasonably and like he's actually feeling out a little bit of suspicion, but he makes this face that does not look like he's surprised to see someone. It looks like he's considering whether or not to have dessert. (laughs) I'll have to look at that again in that context. There's another really great moment where Giles, who, spoiler alert, turns out to be evil. Yes, I wanted to ask you. Really surprising. It's really legitimately surprising, isn't it? I forgot, honestly. Yeah. Uh, it got to that moment again. I'm like, oh man, that's that's great, because they chose such a like likable actor, and Astrid just seems so on board with him that it really disarms you in that way. And you don't generally have the person who really kicks off the story like that actually turn out to be bad. That's a huge reversal, and to wait until the very end for that to come that was a big shock to me. But there's that moment where the doctor is pretending to be Salamander. And Giles doesn't know it's the doctor. Does that scene end up working for you? Because I feel like the doctor never actually gets him to admit to something. Well, he does get him to admit to something, which is that they worked together in the past after when he was sort of supposedly fired, that they had a plan regarding putting the people underground. What doesn't make sense is sort of like, how did the doctor get there in that room in the outfit and stuff? And why does nobody remember that Salamander is underground? It drives. It's it's one of the things in this episode as a whole is it's this future world where they actually have communication. They have these mm-hmm. radios. They have all these different forms of communication. How do they expect this gambit to hold up for more than five minutes at a given time? <laughs> Speaking of the underground, there's this elevator thing. That- oh my god! I I I have to say when Salamander gets into that elevator, first of all, it's totally baffling initially, <laughs> but I love that moment. I kept thinking, you know, it's like this big metal tube and it spins around and then shoots him down below the the set. And this is all done in one take. So it's like an actual working practical effect. And I was just thinking if I was Pat Troughton and I walked onto set that day, I'd be like, no. I'd be like, you're going to kill me. Yeah, I don't trust you guys to make a device that won't cut off my head. That's the thing is, it's definitely not a device. It's just two guys pulling that thing. <laughs> yeah, probably. That actually leads to what may be my favorite component of the story. I like the idea of this world leader who is creating these uh, 
natural disasters and then using that as an opportunity to go in and help people to create not only goodwill but literal profit for himself. But the way it takes this turn where suddenly we go underground and find out he's created a whole other civilization for himself that he is the Messiah of. Yeah, that poor kid. What's his name? Colin. Colin, yeah. Who wants to get out so bad and his life's been so shitty. I feel so bad for Swan, too, the sort of leader of the underground people. He makes this discovery and realizes they've been lied to and gets fooled by Salamander again and gets up there and, what do you know, gets fucking clubbed on the head. Yeah, with a pipe or <laughs> but, something. Yeah, it looks like a hammer or some shit. It's gnarly. No matter what it was, it was yeah. you know, it, he dies kind of awfully. That was what I was going to say is he dies in horrible pain <laughs> in the midst of an epiphany that his life was meaningless suffering. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what happens in Doctor Who. Yeah, every time. <laughs> and then later, uh, when Giles dies, it's this very, very dark, almost sort of a film noir looking scene where Salamander is laughing maniacally as he chases him down a cavern, firing a pistol at him over and over again. You know, they're in this cave and explosives go off right next to Salamander. <laughs> and we see him next alive. Just with his clothes a little tattered. And yeah. One thing that we haven't yet discussed about this episode is that it really has one of those swing for the fences, everyone wear funny hats and jumpsuits visions of the future. Yeah. This episode takes place in 2018. Ah, oh, you're robbing from my trivia. What is with Classic Who and like Mexico becoming a world power in the future? That was a thing during the second Doctor's era is they had, you know, they were trying to be consistent with their future world and they were picking and choosing winners and losers and they were like, Mexico's going to make it. So I was thinking in this episode, maybe Ramon Salamander is like a response to Donald Trump. Oh, there you go. Right now, it's happening. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, particularly any of our Australian Zone listeners, if you waited about six months or so to listen to this podcast, you are now under Salamander's rule. Oh, yeah. Good luck. Sorry. We've probably been arrested for releasing this treasonous podcast. I just wrote down, Benick looks like the ultimate evolution of a fuckboy. <laughs> I, I don't know I, what that word means. I wrote down, and I don't even know what that means. Tweet at us at small finish and tell us what fuckboy <laughs> means. I, I just think it's a problem because it's got like, everyone has a different meaning for it. It's not consistent. Whereas like the word fuck, everybody knows what fuck means. There probably is a meaning. We just don't know because we're not cool enough. We're, I've looked we're it a up before because I was, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was why I looked it up the first time somebody called me a fuckboy. And you were like, yes. <laughs> well, because I thought it was a compliment. <laughs> yeah, How like, can it be a bad thing that I'm you. getting fucked? Yeah, fuckboy. The doctor has a funny moment when he mishears Astrid saying, Oh, don't worry. We've, uh, well, we, I suggested that we meet under a disused jetty by the river. Disused yeti? No, no, no. Jetty, jetty. It's funny, uh, both just because, you know, it's a nice little uh, joke about, about their previous interactions with the yeti. It's also just a funny phrase. <laughs> Disused Yeti. Well, it would only make sense to him because the Yetis are like robots in this universe. And he's like, this one time I fucked a disused Yeti. That's a good sense. Why was it, well, if it was disused, he couldn't have fucked it. Once you fuck it, it's used. You can fuck anything. I know, but then it's a used Yeti. What do you think disused means? <laughs> that means a Yeti that you have yet to fuck. No. That's not what disused means. <laughs> You're using the Yeti for your fuck. Listen, you can take anything and fuck it. Yes, and then it becomes used. If there's a disused car, 
You can go fuck it. Let me ask you this. You can say, I fucked a disused car. Let me ask you this. I'm going to say, no, no, no. Let me ask you this. (laughs) If you have a blow up doll, right? Uh And you fuck it and it gets a big hole in it. And you just leave it in a pile on the floor. And then I come over and I fuck it. Like I did this afternoon to your disused blow up doll. Did I or did I not fuck your disused blow up doll? The doll was answer al- the question. The doll was already answer used. The no, you did not. I'm gonna yell over you. Answer the question to prevent you from answering the question. When you find a disused condom in the street, has it been fucked with? Wait, has it been fucked with? I don't understand yeah. this question. Did somebody fuck with that condom if it's a disused condom? Yes. No. If you found a used condom in the street, what do you think disused means? That it is unused. It means it's no longer used. Oh, it doesn't? (laughs) The one other scene I would be remiss not to mention is my absolute favorite part of this entire six-part story, which is the very final scene, which is when we finally get full-on double trout in action. Troutin on Troutin penetration. <laughs> Ooh. Yes, that's when the other Troutin penetrates the TARDIS. But it's, oh, yeah, I guess so. It's when uh, Salamander in the stupor goes into the TARDIS. Yeah, Jamie kind of leads him into the TARDIS. Yeah, he sort of scoops him up like a wounded animal, <laughs> a wounded doctor animal. You'd think that with everything that's going on, he'd have like a little bit more caution about who he's bringing into the TARDIS? Sort of. It's, I mean, it's a very Jamie thing to do just to be like, oh, yeah, the doctor, come <laughs> on in. You know, you finally get what you've wanted the whole time, which is, first of all, just more Troughton. But also, it's the doctor and Salamander meeting and uh, them shelling out a few bucks on effects to, to, <laughs> to put them both on screen at the same time. And it actually looks really good. But you said we would never to touch the controls. Quite right, Jamie. Welcome to the TARDIS. Thank you. You're doing so well impersonating me. Uh, I thought I might return the compliment. And the doctor has the most incredible line. We're going to put you outside, Salamander. No friends, no safety, nothing. I love that, how the ultimate demise to Salamander is he gets sucked out the door into nothingness. It's so great. And I love the way Troughton is able to bring out that bit of danger and darkness in the doctor and in his doctor in that moment. And now that we've discussed the enemy of the world, time for some trivia. For more than 30 years, most of the serial was believed to be lost, with only the third part remaining in the BBC archive until 2013, when all five of the remaining episodes were announced as having been recovered. Yeah, that was an exciting day. It was like right before the 50th too, wasn't it? They were discovered in a television relay storage room in Nigeria. Thank you, Nigeria. And I believe they were discovered. They were definitely released alongside most of the remaining episodes of the Web of Fear. Well, those were discovered in the same place, weren't they? I was going to say, I think they were found in the exact same place. They were definitely found on the same expedition by Philip Morris into African BBC relay stations, but I'm not sure if it was the actual same outpost. Neither Jamie nor Victoria appear in part four. This is because Fraser Hines and Deborah Watling were on vacation. Together? <laughs> I don't know. Scandalous. <laughs> The source also said, on holiday, but this is America, so fuck that. Vacation. Vacation. Patrick Troughton's son David makes his first appearance in Doctor Who in this serial, uncredited as an extra. He would appear two more times in Classic in The War Games and The Curse of Peladon, and in New Who as Professor Hobbs in Midnight. That's really interesting. 
This episode marks the second instance of a doppelganger doctor, so to speak, as William Hartnell had played two roles in The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve, an extremely lost episode. Yeah, nothing survives, right? No telesnaps, not a goddamn thing. There's audio, and there are a few production stills, and that is it. That sounds like a fun reconstruction to watch. Yeah, there are, I believe, only three stories like that where there's flat out nothing. For its original broadcast, this episode actually concluded with a trailer for the next serial, The Web of Fear, featuring footage of the Doctor in the London Underground talking to the audience shot exclusively for that trailer. Unfortunately, it was not recovered with the episode. However, the audio has survived, and I think it may actually be why, or at least part of why the episode ends extremely abruptly and doesn't bother concluding several plot lines. <laughs> yeah, because it definitely feels like the story is not over. Yeah, I think it's because they knew it's like, okay, we're going to have the doctor just talk to the audience about how yetis are coming back. <laughs> we need some old friends. Yes. We also need some old enemies. Very old enemies. The, uh, the yeti, as a matter of fact. And the, um, this time, they're... They're just a little bit more frightening than last time. Hmm? To date, this remains the only televised story to take place in Australia. Kind of surprising. Yeah. I'm surprised the new who hasn't had like a one minute scene where they start in Australia and they're like, all right, let's go this place now. I guess there's just nothing interesting in Australia. Nothing. And now for this week's new who story, our first two-parter of the show, The Rebel Flesh and The Almost People. Meet the government's worst-kept secret, the flesh. It's fully programmable matter. In fact, it's even learning to replicate itself at the cellular level. Right. Brilliant. Lost. Okay. Once a reading's been taken, we can manipulate its molecular structure into anything. Replicate a living organism down to the hairs on its chinny-chin-chin. In the future, the world's deadliest jobs are performed by the flesh, programmable organic matter that's turned into doppelganger avatars of its controller. After a solar storm gives the flesh a life of its own, a human versus ganger war begins. Standing referee for this bloody bout are the 11th Doctor and his flesh duplicate, intent on proving that peace is the answer. So, Edward, what do you think of the rebel flesh slash the almost people slash the goopy doctor slash <laughs> flesh flesh flesh? I actually really like this two-parter. I, I don't hear it talked about that much as being pretty great. I think, honestly, part of why maybe it gets thrown around as being more middle of the line is because of its role in the arc. It's very arc-heavy. In a way. I mean, you can't really sit down a person who's new to Doctor Who and show them this episode. There would be a lot of bits where they'd be like, what the hell is going on? I think weirdly you could, but there would be about it because the running time of those bits is probably two and a half minutes tops out of both episodes, but they would be moments that would be very confusing. The most obvious one is the very ending of this story. Yes. Where it just takes place in the TARDIS and we find out that Amy has been pregnant and a flesh since the beginning of season six. Yeah. We're coming for you, I swear. Whatever happens, however hard, however far, we will find you. I'm right here. No, not you haven't been here for a long, long time. This is an example of one of those Stephen Moffat twists where it doesn't feel like a twist that you could see coming. And yet, it's really great. I love the twist in this episode. And the only issue I have with it is that I don't think 
it aged well in the story. Well, I think that just the story hasn't aged well. Not not the story that we are currently talking about, but the arc in general. And the pregnancy stuff is really good in this. Yes. I love the way that it's, it's woven into the doctor's dialogue. At the beginning, they're talking about this approaching storm. I've got to get to that cockerel before all hell breaks loose. I never thought I'd have to say that again. I may breathe. Yeah. I mean, thanks. I'll, I'll try. Yeah, there's a lot of very subtle moments where they're just kind of like sneaking that in that it's like it's it's in the doctor's head. That is a thing. You know, we get a pretty good look at that solar storm that happens to this monastery. It looks bad. It looks like it should melt the planet. (laughs) (laughs) I actually want to talk to you about the, the monastery as a setting. How do you feel about that monastery? It's really hard for me to pin down what I actually don't like about this episode. I think that by all accounts, it's a really good episode, but there's just something about the tone of it. Like it's too dark when the episode isn't dark to me. And I think it's actually the setting itself. But I I like the contrast of a monastery being a factory. I really like the episode overall, but the monastery has always been one of my least favorite elements of it because I think it prevents the story from both feeling big and feeling genuinely as off-world as the story should feel because it just fucking looks like a monastery in england i don't think that the story needs to be any bigger i think it's a contained story and that's what's interesting about it about these people who are stuck on this island but it should all... feel like space or something it shouldn't yeah, feel it like a space station shepherd sure <laughs> that's just my, my attempt at an english place <laughs> <laughs> it sounded good i was going along with it <laughs> i don't know about you i love the look of the gangers Minus the CGI parts. Okay, so I think that this episode suffers from something I like to call the Lazarus Project effect. <laughs> yeah. Where they just went a little bit too crabby. I don't know. Right, I think you're right. To clarify, when they're people form. Yeah, I think they look great. I especially like it on the 11th Doctor. Yes. Is the cliffhanger at the end of part one too obvious? It's clearly an obvious thing that's going to happen. From the moment he touches the flesh, right? But I think they do a good job of the timing of it. Because from the moment this episode is happening, you know that's going to happen. You need to have that fun. But they space it out where the last time the doctors interacted with it was maybe 20 minutes earlier. I think it works as a cliffhanger. The first time I watched it, I wasn't on the same page as you. I wasn't immediately thinking, oh, there's gangers, so there's going to be another doctor. But the moment where a mouth comes out of it and goes, trust me, (laughs) you know, that's clearly supposed to be a ominous red herring, but it was pretty obvious what exactly was going to happen. Yeah. They really write the doctor very differently in the two parts. The rebel flesh has almost no 11th doctor candy. And so for our audience's benefit, because these episodes titles are both kind of just, (laughs) that's part one. That's part one. He's a pretty serious doctor. He's just sort of about his work. And then once you have two doctors bouncing off of each other, they're immediately... First of all, you have this sprint of classic references. Mm-hmm. What's happening? Uh, one day we will get back. Yes. One day. Ah! Reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. The flesh is struggling to cope with our past regenerations. Hold on. But you get these two doctors together and it's... It feels odd to say, but first of all, Matt Smith has great chemistry with himself. Yeah. (laughs) That first shot where you actually get to see the two doctors in the same shot, the green screen's really not that great. It looks kind of worse than the shot 
you know, 60 years ago <laughs> in Enemy of the World. I never noticed that. <laughs> but they do a good job after that. Like, there's that scene where they're, like, popping up behind the console. Listen, some shot has to get done last. Something's the last thing they do before the episode shifts. <laughs> Once those two Doctors get together, they ramp up the, the fun side of the 11th Doctor. There's this great exchange where they're bantering, and they say, Yowza! An escapement! You know, I'm starting to get a sense of just how impressive it is to hang out with me. Do we tend to say yowza? That's enough. Let it go. Okay. We're under stress. And I love that yowza actually comes back. It's true. He it's does eventually point. say yowza. He adapts yowza. He's like, you know what? I'm stressed all the time now. <laughs> <laughs> so there's these various minor characters. Not, not minor characters, but, you know, they are minors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're underaged. There's one that... That's what you meant, right? Yes. Yeah. There's one guy who is so forgettable. Oh my God, I know exactly who you're talking about. It's the one whose ganger lives at the end. Yes. Yeah. Struggling, struggling, struggling. Dickin. His name is Dickin? D-I-C-K-E-N. Like Dickens. But he didn't earn the S. Okay. They have a lot of weird names like Buzzer. Buzzer, yeah. I guess those are probably nicknames. Oh, yeah, I guess so. What did he do to get the nickname Dickin? <laughs> Maybe he read only one Charles Dickens novel. <laughs> no, you know what it is? He put his dick in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, listen, there's no flesh for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> he doesn't have that ability. We can't just grow it back. Yeah. Speaking of which, there's a big reveal. I'm very curious what the speaking of which is. <laughs> Can the flesh grow a dick back? There's a big reveal at the end of this where it turns out that the two doctors have been playing this little trick on Amy I, I really love that moment. Quite yeah, a that's bit. great. I think that's a, a hugely important moment for the episode and part of what makes it, in, in my opinion, a very good episode. The way it works is that they switched their shoes. Yes. But the shoes that the Flesh Doctor were wearing were made of flesh. So the, the normal Doctor is just now wearing Flesh shoes. <laughs> and we don't see him take them off and he wears them into the next episode, presumably. Yeah, presumably for episodes and episodes to come. Yeah, is he just wearing weird organic shoes? Oh, and they're screaming. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because their master or whatever is dead. Yeah, they're like the eyes. They're just haunted by the memories of death. The eyes were strange. I actually wanted to bring up the eyes. I think the eyes are one of the biggest missteps in the episode. The eyes really don't work. What do you think of Jennifer? I like Jennifer. I think the whole trajectory of her character is neat. She's kind of the Magneto of the gang. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> what I like about her most is that Cleves fucks everything up, right? Mm -hmm. Cleves ruins everything. She starts this. It's us or them. She ruins any chance of peace. But I like that they make her character a little bit more interesting than that. They give her an arc. And at the same time, they give Jennifer an arc by having them trade hands, basically. Well, it does bother me the first time that Jennifer is making her little pitch to all the gangers. Cleves is clearly not on board. Uh -huh. She is completely against it. And throughout the rest of the episode, she comes off as a very strong leader character. It seems very strange to me how quickly she relinquishes that role to jennifer yeah i think it's because like her character is kind of dying throughout the episode mm -hmm. and so you do see her more than any other character in part because she's a lot more of a character than the other characters she's changing a lot more and then she softens a lot you know I, so i really want to like jennifer i i like the premise that she was almost like the, she was the little bitch of the group at the beginning of the episode, you know? Yeah. And then she becomes this... And I like that, like, story of, I saw another Jennifer. 
And I imagined another little girl, just like me in red wellies. And she was Jennifer too. Except she was a strong Jennifer. A tough Jennifer. She's got like two huge problems. One is she becomes an awful looking crab monster. <laughs> Which is just so hard to forgive the crappy CGI sometimes. It's it not happens. about the C. Okay, it's it's pretty. Big it's about a lot the CGI. about the CGI. But the other thing is, she's got this really weird thing going on with Rory. Yeah, in this you episode. know, I felt like Rory's end of it. I liked at times. I like him as a nurturer, but then he ends up being a real dipshit for a lot of the episode. Well, it really bothers me because she's being very forward romantically. Yes, and there's not a single moment where he goes. You know, that's my wife. Yeah. And it's like they kind of make her do it because she kind of kisses him and he's like, uh. and then she goes, Amy's a very lucky woman. He's like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I probably should have said that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you one thing I really don't like about Jennifer. The real Jennifer, and I guess the fake one briefly, when she is limping, she limps like the director said, hey, do a crazy pirate hobble. <laughs> <laughs> she over limps. Yeah, it's ridiculous. What do you think about the moment where she literally kills another ganger to further her goal? I actually really like that moment because when I go back and watch that episode, like a rube, I forget that's what's happening. <laughs> and I think that it's <laughs> that they actually sorted it out. <laughs> and so to me, it's a very effective twist. Seeing this for like the fifth time, I'm still like, oh. <laughs> I think it's kind of necessary they need to literally make her a monster. Yeah. Because if they don't, they're saying the opposite of what the real message of the story is. You know, the message of the story is they're a new form of life with their own thoughts and feelings and they should be allowed to live. And if you have one of them just be an asshole, but not too much of an asshole, yeah. it kind of disproves that point. To not go almost full Hitler. Yeah. Full Magneto, certainly. We'll say. Full crab. Yeah. <laughs> full crab Nito. But speaking of that, I do think it's important that we cover briefly the ethical dilemma aspect of this episode. To me, it's a big part of what makes it better than an average New Who episode. There's a great moment where Jimmy is talking about being there for his son's birth. Make it home for Adam's birthday. What about me? He's my son too. You. You really think that? I feel it. Oh, so you were there when he was born, were you? Yeah. Drank about eight pints of tea, and they told me I had a wee boy, and I just burst out laughing. <laughs> no idea why. He's describing a moment that his physical body wasn't there for, but his memories are obviously completely real to him. And I think they create a genuine ethical dilemma. They don't do what a full-blown dilemma episode does, which is sort of hinge the episode on a choice for a character. But I think they create an interesting circumstance that is, you know, it creates empathy and makes you sort of really feel for those those gangers in that situation. Absolutely. Because before that, you're just kind of left up to the doctor to tell us that these are people and they deserve lives. But that moment where you actually are like, oh, yeah, how do they resolve this issue? Let me ask you something. So there are two major elements that create the actual peril in this and are what make it a sort of claustrophobic story. There are the solar flares. And there's the TARDIS sinking into the earth outside. Do you think both of those together are a bit too much of a contrivance for the plot? Uh, the solar flares don't bother me. The TARDIS always has. That's how I feel about it as well. I think you can have one, but you can't really have both. 
just do the you know do the solar flares have it so that they can't reach the TARDIS because of the solar flares I, I honestly think New Who does that too often where they just get rid of the TARDIS from the story because it's like why wouldn't the Doctor just run away because the Doctor would never just run away you know he would solve the issue the only nice part is it's fun when it drops into the hallway I love when he's like counting it down he's like here she comes yeah <laughs> There's a bit of dialogue towards the end between the doctor and the ganger doctor as well as uh, ganger cleaves. And they're talking quite a bit about the possibility that the ganger doctor might survive somehow. And the doctor tosses the ganger doctor his sonic screwdriver. Uh, your molecular memory can survive this, you know. It may not be the end. Yeah, well, if I turn up to nickel your biscuits, then you'll know you're right, won't you? <laughs> I was just wondering, like, was was that just sort of like keeping your options open or are we supposed to like interpret that like that might actually happen one day? I don't think so. Well, we literally see him melt. But I think it was like saying that they might be able to be reconstituted. I mean, the flesh are melt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why doesn't the doctor just go back to that flesh factory and make like 20 of him and just send them all out into the universe? So he, it, I just feel like it would be more efficient. Yeah, he'd save <laughs> save twenty planets at a time. Well, I mean, how interested in fixing things is he really? <laughs> Hitler's still number one on the list. Come on, Doctor, <laughs> let's kill Hitler. I've never killed Hitler. That's my <laughs> awful Peter Capaldi impression. I thought it was sort of odd for Amy when Rory is just like out there, just wild, wet and wild, loose with the flesh for like a full episode of New Who. Essentially, she's largely. Very relaxed about the whole thing. She's very blasé about a thing that can literally be described as her husband ran off for a flesh adventure with someone else. (laughs) For a flesh adventure with a woman that's probably going to kill him. With a weird crab thing. On an acid planet. Everybody was on acid in this. (laughs) Now that we have discussed the rebel flesh and the almost people, it's time for some trivia. When the flesh doctor says... Would you like a jelly baby? It is actually a recording of Tom Baker. This is, in fact, quite obvious and rather jarring. I didn't notice that. There's actually a much more well-hidden one that I had to go back and listen to. David Tennant's voice is used when he says, Hello, I'm the doctor. Whoa. Yeah. This is all blowing my mind. Would you like a jelly baby? Why? 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 What? Other references were also made. These were, of course, just Matt Smith talking to the first doctor when he says, we will go back. Interestingly, he says, we will go back, not I, I will go, go back. back. And I was going to say, it's definitely him saying reverse the polarity of the neutron yes, flow, right? Yeah, which okay. is, a, of course, a reference to the third doctor. Okay. Thank God. I would have lost my mind if that had been Pertwee's voice. Reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. <laughs> Sarah Jane. Just Matt Smith being smithy. The gangers were influenced in this story by the movie The Thing. And the monastery was influenced by the Sean Connery film The Name of the Rose. Do you know about this movie? I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, all I know is it takes place in a monastery and he's in it and so is F. Murray Abraham. Well, bad choice in my opinion. (laughs) Of what? F. Murray Abraham? No, the the monastery. Oh, okay. (laughs) F. Murray Abraham. (laughs) The scene where the doctor quizzes his flesh counterpart to prove that they have the same memories was originally much longer, including references to Joe Grant, Sarah Jane, Romana, Rose, Martha, and Donna. Wow. That rhymes. That does. <laughs> trivia on trivia. Yeah. Triviaception. 
I mean, I th- I would have liked to see a little bit more, but that seems like a lot. That sounds excessive. Unless it was just like, do you remember this list of people? Yeah. Yes, check. It would have to be a question where he would be like, name all, name a bunch of companions, and then the flesh guy goes, Joe Grant, blah 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 blah. You know. And another doctor would be like, that rhymed. <laughs> Strange. Karen Gillan, this this is weird. <laughs> Karen Gillan discussed the labor scene at length with her own mother in order to make it quote really horrific. Oh, I thought you were going to say accurate at the end, and I was no. like, why is this weird? And then you said the thing, and I was like, ah. Like, what did her mother say to her when she was a child? She was like, well, the worst part was a baby came out at the end. <laughs> I don't think Karen Gillan's actually Scottish. It's just Amy's Scottish. I think she is. Is she? I think she is. Sweet. Writer Matthew Graham and guest star Marshall Lancaster worked together previously on another British time travel show, Life on Mars, as well as the subsequent series, Ashes to Ashes. Life on Mars was starring John Sim. I, I do want to give a sh- quick shout out to this show. It's an absolutely fantastic show. John Sim is great in it. When I say it's a British time travel show, don't go in expecting Doctor Who. Yeah. It's much more of a kind of a cool character drama. It's almost like Lost meets a police procedural. That's a good description. Now that we have discussed our doppelganging episodes, it's time for a dilemma. Now you have got to make a choice. So, Fenric, what are you going to pick? You know, I really want to pick Enemy of the World, but if I'm being honest to myself, I got to give it to Rebel Flesh and whatever the other one's called. <laughs> uh, almost he, People. He really loves the episodes, folks. It, the Titan, well, it's just these titles. These two titles are so interchangeable and I don't know. Edward, what are you going to go with? It's very hard for me to decide, actually. It seems like Edward is having his own internal dilemma. It's a tough choice for me this week, but I'm also going to go with the Rebel Flesh and the Almost People. So, you know what that means, folks. It's all right. I've got a coin here ready to go for my famous always catch it every week. <laughs> he catches it's very it every impressive. Time. All right. If, if you actually catch this, I will accuse you of being a doppelganger. Oh, interesting. So, I called it last time. Yeah. So, do you want to call it? So, in honor of our two-faced episode... I will pick heads. <laughs> you Not should, even close. You know what? Do, play to your skills. Do the embarrassing two-handed grab. I don't, don't even. I don't even know where it went. Don't try to act like you can catch it like a normal human. Do you, Do you see it? Yeah, it's right there. You're always it's so, so sad every time. Where? Okay, I'm pointing at it. It's less than. It's like by your finger. Oh, yeah. Do you want me to flip it again? No, just see, go with see what, it, what was? it was. Because it is tails, and you, you called heads. Edward Grove, the true enemy of the world. <laughs> Why don't you uh, show us what you got? That means I get to call you an almost person later. <laughs> <laughs> it's accurate. The Enemy of the World is a great Doctor Who story that showcases a brilliant performance from its doctor. It's got an ambitious scope, really unlike almost anything else in the era. I mean, it has not only gunfights and helicopter chases, it has a helicopter exploding. <laughs> it's also got a genuinely compelling plot where the twists aren't only surprising, they're meaningful to the plot development. There aren't a lot of classic episodes where you have a turn that's on par with Salamander going underground and turning out that he is a messianic figure to an underground society of people who are generating earthquakes for him. Yeah, I mean, the earthquakes are kind of expected because a lot of people keep 
feeding you that theory. They're like, I bet he's making the earthquakes. But the people underground, very surprising. Yeah, that would just be a box in like in any other episode. Yeah, where he just flips a, an it, earthquake it'd switch. It'd have a little switch and a light on it, and it would be like, you'd hit it, and then the camera would shake. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this is a really ambitious episode that builds a big world. And you know the, the price it pays is looking extremely hilariously dated. I mean, Astrid's outfit is a, a laugh and a half, if you ask me. <laughs> oh, you don't wear that in 2018? No, I, I guess we don't know yet. I do, but it's, it's you know... When it's, you're alone. It's when I'm, yeah. Sexual purposes. I think, honestly, if you go doppelganger to doppelganger, it's really hard to call. Pat Troughton is so great in Enemy of the World in both of the parts he plays. It's kind of unfair that he gets to play two separate parts versus Matt Smith essentially playing the same character. Which is kind of the premise. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Because I was going to say, I think that's why, in my opinion, what performance-wise and doppelganger-wise, Enemy of the World accomplishes is more impressive. But it's not an apples-to-apples comparison. Because Matt Smith is supposed to be playing the Doctor twice. Yeah, It wasn't an opportunity for him to play two roles. The whole concept of what makes the Rebel Flesh and the almost people work as a story is that they believe and they are those people. So if you acted differently, it'd be weird. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely playing into the the commentary of the episode, which is pretty good. I, I, I really like the, it's not pushy. I mean, the doctor is really pushy about it, but it's it makes sense in world. I think that Rebel Flesh and Almost People has some big flaws. For me, the biggest thing is just Jennifer as, as a character. I was I mean, about to say, let's go antagonist to antagonist. Yeah, I, Salamander beats the shit out of Jennifer, I, and I like Jennifer more than you do. Yeah, I gotta give it to to Salamander. I really like Salamander, not only as a villain, but just he, he participates in some of my favorite Pat Troughton moments. Oh my gosh, yeah. I think if it weren't for the fact that it was lost for so long, it would be held in even higher regard. But I think it did fly under the radar. You know, it's not evil of the Daleks. It doesn't have a major event that's going to change the arc of multiple seasons of the show in it. Yeah, and the Rebel Flesh and the Almost People does have that kind of thing. It, it's a big plot point in an overarching season six story. And no matter how you feel about Stephen Moffat, it went against the odds <laughs> and was a good moment in that arc. Yeah, I do think it takes a bruising because of what ends up happening with Madame Kavarian. But I agree that the moment when Amy turns out to be Flesh is really, really cool. And that final moment of that episode where basically the doctor says, you know, we're going to find you. We're never going to stop until we get you. It leads so perfectly. Ah, I literally got, I got goosebumps. Damn you. (laughs) Just that I like relived the moment. (laughs) I mean, but you're putting it up against the ending of Enemy of the World, which is also really great. I'm I'm trying to think if there's literally another trial in line that is quite as impactful while being as subtle as what he says to Salamander in that moment or what captures that level of just that drop of darkness the second Doctor had in him. And I don't think there's anything quite like that. It's definitely a place that Hartnell's Doctor never would have gone to. Absolutely. You know, I think uh, Pat Trowan really blew the doors wide open, both in being more lighthearted and being darker. Yeah. And, you know, Matt Smith says that he takes a lot of his performance from Pat Trouton. So, boom, take that. (laughs) Your whole story just borrowed out your whole doctor from my story. But I think like an an area where Rebel Flesh and Almost People clearly shines, I think, is the side characters. Honestly, 
enemy of the world could really use some economy? You know, I think for Classic, it has a number of characters that stand out as being really great. I actually, you know, I'm, I'm kind of tempted to put them on par. I think Faria is really good. I think Giles is really good. I think Bruce is really good. But you get deeper into that roster, <laughs> you get to Griffith <laughs> the chef, and uh, shit starts to tumble downhill. But I think the Rebel Flesh and the Almost People, for being a two-parter, has a pretty weak bench as well. We got Dickon. We got old Dickon in Dickon there. Dickon is the weak point. Buzzer. I, I think Buzzer's fine. I, oh, maybe it's just because I really like Life a, on Mars. He's a good actor. Yeah, that yeah. We, we like from other things. But I would say you'd be really hard-pressed to say that there's a moment as good in Enemy of the World as when, when the two Jimmies are realizing that they have this conflict over his son. Yeah, I think that's very true. Unfortunately, I would like to lie. Maybe if I speak slowly enough, I will <laughs> think of something from <laughs> the enemy of the world. No, because, you know, probably, you know, the, the stuff that has the strongest emotional pull in enemy of the world is maybe Colin underground. I was say Colin, yeah. And I really do feel very bad for Swan when he gets out there and just gets clubbed and then just dies miserably. But it's not the same level. I mean, honestly, you could almost argue Colin if he had a resolution. An ending beat. Yeah. yeah. He just kind of disappears. Yeah, because you do really feel for him and the the way they, they set it up and then he's finally discovering, oh, particularly the moment where he's beating on the intercom and being like, why my swan and not me? Why not me? Why can't, why can't I come up there? And it's like, oh, fuck, you don't even know that guy's dying. Yeah. That guy's going up there to get killed. You're begging for the opportunity to get killed because you're so miserable down there. But they don't finish his story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another place where I think that Rebel Flesh and Almost People is going to take it is probably Companions. Shit, don't say that. I was literally being like, don't say the word Companion so he won't think of this. Yeah, I mean, I really like what Jamie has to do in part two. Listen, let me say this, though. It's not that wide of a margin. I think it's wider than you think. No, no, no. Listen, hear me out. Because Rory has decent moments, but has a lot of dumb shit in the Rebel Flash and Almost People. I mean, honestly, I think maybe his little bit with Jennifer is my least favorite thing in the episode. Aha! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but he still has great moments in this, and I think that this is a really great Amy episode. I think Jamie overall is really good in The Enemy of the World. I think he's really funny. I love the moment when it's rigged by Astrid and they put that fake bomb in salamander's uh, telecom device i don't know why they didn't just blow his head off with it but whatever <laughs> and then jamie leaps onto the balcony throws the comm like throws the guards away and then just sits there across his arms like what's up <laughs> <laughs> my dick's almost poking out of my kills it's so big <laughs> <laughs> yeah jamie's jamie's great and i love when he beats up that guy in part two. Oh my god he just slugs him yeah pow <laughs> and i love how like immediately ramon uh salamander like just Falls in love with him. Yes. I think it's just a Pat Trout and Jamie thing. Uh, yeah, they can't help it. Yeah. But it's hard to deny that the arc that Amy goes through in this story is so much the premise of the show or of this particular episode. Yes. And I think they do it very well. I think that Enemy of the World not only has the bigger scope, but really does have the more compelling science fiction world and science fiction premise, both in this admittedly sort of silly from a modern perspective, but really ambitious, you know, 
what's the it's everything's run by like the world zone commission or something like that and there are all of these multi-continental entities and then the premise of salamander and the way he manipulates them i think is really fascinating and even though at the end of the day he's just using solar power (laughs) (laughs) strange how both of these episodes you know at the end of the day you could just say it was the sun's fault yeah yeah fuck the sun (laughs) (laughs) who needs it right yeah uh, yeah, I agree. I really like the the premise. Honestly, what it comes down to me is the premise of Enemy of the World is let's just give Pat Trouton more to do <laughs> and have him battle himself, which is yeah. perfectly fine with me. I'm totally fine to see that. Honestly, I don't know what it is, but seeing Pat Trouton on screen gives me joy. Me too. In a, a higher degree than almost any other doctor. Yeah, that I really like that era of the show. And, you know, this was a really unique story for its period. Almost his whole era, but particularly that series, it's basically all like base under siege and these um, sort of similar pattern monster stories. And this is a Doctor Who story where they're not running down corridors. I mean, certain parts look almost more like the Pertwee era. And I think Rebel Flesh, while it has a really interesting concept, is more guilty of using more Doctor Who tropes to actually beat out its story. Yeah, I think that's fair. But at the same time, it's got a higher amount of total canon to deal with. So you, you're you almost running out of things that you can do in Doctor Who that haven't been done before. <laughs> yeah, I, it is true just by nature of the amount of time that had passed between yeah. the two. <laughs> but still, th- it's nice. Big open world and enemy of the world. You know, lots of running through hallways and rebel flesh. That's true. Tiny little point for enemy of the yeah, world. I do love the scale of enemy of the world. Yeah. You know what's confusing about Enemy of the World? I'll briefly sabotage myself here. Uh, <laughs> Please do. Where things are happening. It's very confusing about like, I guess it's all in the Australasian zone, but it seems like sometimes they're much further away from each other at different times than they are. Sometimes it seems like they're like a continent apart. And then sometimes it seems like, oh no, that was actually very close to the other place. Did you, did you get that sense of Yeah, I, I did as well. What's weird to me is Giles Kent has that like, trailer that he lives in outside the research zone never mind forget this (laughs) no you make a very valid point at least they're not in a monastery (laughs) (laughs) i think if we're sticking with the doppelganger theme of this episode a big part of that is those kind of moments where we, we don't really know who's who and i think both of these episodes have really great moments of that i think that rebel flesh does it better it's almost the main premise of part two. I could quote you earlier in this podcast saying you wish that the Rebel Flesh and almost people had more because I think there's really only one scene that has that moment, which is the, the two Jennifer sequence. Well, there's the two Jennifers and then there's also the two doctors trading spots. Okay, I see what you're saying. But that's that's never played up for for mystery. There's a twist involving it, but you never get the the suspense kind of feeling of a are they or are they not? Yeah, that's true. It's not really done in that way. It's done much more in a, when you find out, it's like, oh shit. And that is a great moment. That is a really powerful moment. So this is our first New Who two-parter. They made this decision when they started doing New Who of, if it's going to be a two-parter, it has to have a reason to have a two-parter, which I think really helps with the enjoyment of moving the story along for two hours. You know, in this case, it's there's a big twist that happens at the end of part one. Suddenly there's another doctor introduced. We really get our doppelganger right there. And I think, honestly, when it comes down to it, six parts is too much for Enemy of the World. I think that there's a solid, almost three parts where we're just, 
You know, I just want to see Pat Trouton impersonating Ramon Salamander. <laughs> you know, it's like, I want to disagree with you because I think unlike a lot of other six-parters, it's much more compelling. I think a lot of new who viewers checking out classic would enjoy this episode more than most six-parters because stuff's actually happening. The plot's moving forward. But ultimately, I agree that what you come to it for in that respect, it kind of misses the mark on. I think it does a lot of things really well, but the actual main plot of it, it's it's almost avoiding the main plot, you know? Yeah. There's so many episodes in this where it's just two just trying to decide if he wants to participate in the story. So ultimately, I, I'll say I will admit defeat in this regard that the Rebel Flesh and the Almost People is the superior doppelganger story. And for me, I think what it really comes down to, and it's why I, I, I wanted to choose to uh, champion that two-parter, is not only because of what you said, but also because it puts forward a concept that really does resonate with me on a personal level. And I think somehow, and I, I think it's because of the part it plays in Series 6's arc, I think it gets overlooked and I think it really is a very good two-parter that has an emotional resonance. I accept your session. Now, as is tradition, an exact replica of me will be made and thrown into acid and my eyes will be scooped out and glued to your wall to stare at you in horror forever. Oh, yes. We do this every week. Yeah. It's, it's pretty gross. And every single time, all they say is, Why? The answer is for podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> for the listeners. For the listeners, exactly. We do it for you guys at home. Aww. Now that we've dealt with that dramatic doppelganging dilemma, we move on to our bonus this week, an entry from Big Finish, The Church and the Crown. This might be a little hard to believe, but the um, princess's handmaiden bears quite a striking resemblance to your majesty. To me? Yes, it really is quite startling. Two peas in a pod, in fact. I believe the men who abducted Perry mistook her for yourself. Then we must find these men at once. Written by Coven Scott and Mark Wright, this story follows the Doctor as he lands in the middle of a conspiracy that threatens the monarchy of 17th century France. But the spotlight lands directly on Perry, who happens to look nearly identical to Queen Anne. In fact, they look so similar, Perry is kidnapped in her place. And so the Doctor must join forces with the King's Musketeers to rescue her and foil the plot that threatens the crown. All right, so Fenric, what did you think of the Church and the Crown? Yeah, I kind of had a hard time getting into this one. Yes, I agree. (laughs) It's funny because this is normally the part of the show where it like basically cools down from the debate into we both just talk about how much we love whatever big finish we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's going to be sort of the same, but a little bit different this time. I honestly have to commend you on your ability to write a synopsis for this story. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I mean, you you can follow it, but I will admit, it's harder than just about any other Big Finish to track what's happening at the beginning. Yeah, it gets a lot easier around part two or part three. Yeah, at the beginning, there's clearly some kind of musketeer gangbang going on. There's, there's too much sword fighting. In yeah, this. there's like sword fighting, and there's you know the uh, Richelieu's guards, and but it's just it's just in a, a tavern of some kind. Somebody's did something, but you don't understand it, and then people are going somewhere. And for the longest time, because you know we have to discuss this on a podcast, I'm just trying to find out which fucking musketeer is which. Yeah, you know, fucking okay, who who is 
who's Del Mar and who's Ruffet? And just one of you say the other's name in a situation where I can tell who you are. Maybe the premise is that you're not supposed to. They're just anonymous musketeers. That's the point. There you go. Let me ask you, have you read The Three Musketeers? Yes. So you you probably know a lot more about this than, than I do. Well, it's pretty different. You know, it doesn't follow the characters from The Three Musketeers. Right. But what's weird about this to me from that perspective is that they kind of went the route of saying, forget about that book. This is more of a historical, right? And it's talked about in those terms. But it's centered around a number of major events that, unless I'm just totally wrong, are completely fictitious. Like the invasion of yeah. of France by, by uh, yeah, Lord Buckingham? Yeah, a foiled uh, invasion of France at this period. I don't think that happened. Well, that is kind of a plot point, is that the doctor's like, this doesn't happen, we have to stop it. Yes, but there's no, but he doesn't cause it. You know what I mean? There's like no science fiction-y thing behind that. Normally when Doctor Who does that, it's because Zardos from the planet Blooblop <laughs> is, you know, he, he's behind the invasion. That reminds me, he and Perry have a discussion. It's one of the show's most serious discussions about how do they tell the difference between what is appropriate intervention and what isn't. The history books are written. How do we know it didn't happen this way? We could be changing history as we speak. Maybe Buckingham did invade. Maybe he did succeed. How would we know? I would know. The longer you travel with me, the easier it will become to understand. We are part of history as much as Buckingham, Delmar, Rufe, the king and queen. And really all the doctor says is, eh, fuck you, because I know. But the doctor also says, we have always been here. We always will be here. That's just bullshit. That's just him going, ah, blah. They Shut up, of, Perry. They're part of the time stream now. What I think is more weird is, you know, our doppelganger of this episode is Perry looks a lot like Queen Anne. That's right. Yeah. I would have thought that at this point, the doctor would know what every <laughs> fucking regal person in all of Earth's history looks like. And when he met Perry, he should have gone, you know, you look a lot like my friend <laughs> Queen Anne. <laughs> this might be an issue. <laughs> You know, talking about this as a doppelganger episode, as that's our theme for today, this is by far the story where it works the worst. Obviously, in audio, it's not going to be as compelling sort of innately, but the problem is Nicola Bryant isn't doing her inane American accent for Queen Anne. Yeah. So to me, it doesn't sound like the same person. Oh, I, I definitely get Nicola Bryan from it. But it doesn't sound like the same person. Like, I, if you're familiar enough with the actress, you can get, okay, but it sounds like she's playing a different part completely. The part that I like the most about the whole doppelganger storyline is when Perry finally meets her. Doctor, I don't think I look anything like her. Her nose is crooked. I thought that was really fun. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty fun line. Yeah, I I found it really hard to just care about anybody in the story. There's a moment where, you know, after we watched Twin Dilemma and we talked about how the the sixth doctor criticizes the fifth doctor. And after that, there's always this lens that I look at the fifth doctor. I'm just like, you know, how how effete are you? And every so often, just like, dude, you are just the the grand cuck of the universe. (laughs) It's such a problem in Doctor Who having companions run off. And in this episode, we have the odd occasion where the companion straight up says, Guys, I'm finding all this fascinating, but uh, do you mind if I strike out on my own for a bit? And Five goes, uh, yeah, I guess. At first he objects. He's like, it might be dangerous out there. But then she just goes off anyway. Yeah, she's Why like, ah, did- oh, but I can. And he's like, I guess you're right. 
Aramim is also in this episode. Yes, let's talk about Aramim a bit. Aramim is a big Finnish original companion. But Aramim's uh, really great. I really like her. Premise is basically she's an Egyptian queen that decides to travel with them. And this is her first real outing. There's a great moment really early on where Aramim gets to shine as a companion. The first time they go to court. And the fifth doctor can't even come up with an explanation for why they're there. And Aramim is just quick as a whip, you know. I was much younger when I first visited your kingdom with my father. But your hospitality has long been remembered. Well, of course I uh, remember you. Well, who, who could forget such a striking and regal countenance? Who oh, indeed. You honor me, your majesty. And the invitation to your ball honors me further. Um, we don't actually have an invitation. Have faith. Ah, yes, of course. You there, footman. Yes, Your Majesty. Quick, check the seating plan. If she's not on, I'd put her on it and be quick about it. Yes, Your Majesty. I did like that because it gave the companion a moment to fit in, be smart, do something active in the story, but in a way that fit their unique strengths. Once the doctor gets himself kidnapped trying to find Perry and Perry's escaped and gotten lost, I was just like, who cares? <laughs> Who cares? Because all the only stakes at that point is the king is trying to have a ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Cardinal Richelieu not having it. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. And those rascally musketeers. And it's weird because the title of the story is The Church and the Crown. And the only time that rivalry really comes into play is at that moment where Cardinal Richelieu is like, you have to not have a ball or we will have you excommunicated from the church. Well, you, you forgot about their chess game at the beginning. Oh my God. With the incredibly witty bit of dialogue. I believe the phrase I'm looking for is checkmate. Damn you, Richelieu. Your majesty, it's just a game. <sighs> Everything's just a game to you, Cardinal. I thought that was some of the corniest dialogue I've ever heard out of Big Finish. It also just sounded like the king probably really sucks at chess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, what did you think of the king? The only thing that really there is to take away about the king is he's just a dick to his wife. He's a dick. He also, he just seemed so young and not powerful. Like his voice was just, it was just weird to imagine him as a king. Yeah. He definitely just sounded like a little bitch. (laughs) Uh, There's, you know, the whole reason why the king doesn't like Queen Anne is because she had this affair once with the Duke of Buckingham. Which is confusing because by all accounts, this is, perhaps the only antagonist in all of Doctor Who whose sole motivation behind their actions in the story is simply that he hates women. (laughs) The Duke of Buckingham is talking to Madame de Chevreux and he says, Women. The world is full of women. All of them wretched. (laughs) The historical figure, uh, the first Duke of Buckingham, uh, George, he was gay (laughs) (laughs) and uh, had an affair with james the first so that seemed unlikely yeah you know the drama between the queen and the king didn't work for me because he keeps reminding her about this affair and she just will not address it with any emotion whatsoever just give us one moment where it's clear that she likes the duke or doesn't like the duke anymore just something yeah their relationship is really really odd they have this really strange exchange where he basically says that he locked up Richelieu to impress her. And then she says, Louis, if I didn't despise the ground you walked on, I'd say that's the sweetest thing anyone's ever said to me. 
And it's kind of, I think, supposed to be sort of the cathartic moment of their relationship. I don't think so. I thought it was just played for laughs. See, I think that's supposed to be like the basically as close as you get to like, this is their relationship coming to a close in the story. Because it's the very end and it's like, it's them at the ball. The closest they get to agreeing on anything is that moment. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Historically, they didn't, they didn't actually get along ever. Right. But I think that's what that's supposed to be in the story. And I just heard that and I was like, I don't, I hate these people. I hate both of them. <laughs> They're both just awful in the story. There's this ongoing joke in this story that, you know, five goes to court and everybody assumes he's a jester. And I was, kept thinking, you know, we just did the Marion conspiracy a couple episodes ago mm-hmm. where six went to court and nobody thought anything, <laughs> you know, about his multicolored jacket, but this guy with, you know, celery on his lapel. Well, he's still wearing the outfit from Black Orchid. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, <laughs> he was just, just like, I'm just vibing in this. <laughs> he got really high earlier. <laughs> I was like, he's like rubbing the mask. And so I was like, it just feels good. It's like skin on my skin. So he was just in full Harley Quinn. Yeah. Would a fan of the Three Musketeers like this? Like, are you a fan? I thought it was okay. I, I have to say, I bet I'd like it more if I read it now. But I was not a huge fan. I did enjoy when the doctor gave Alexander Dumas a bit of ribbing. Richelieu, wasn't he the bad guy? No, 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 quite the opposite. Alexander Dumas has a lot to answer for. Tiresome man, completely ignored the notes I gave him on his first draft. But I think that he probably did that because Dumas was black. What? <laughs> I think if you had to go through the doctors and peg who was most likely, which incarnations were most likely white supremacists, I bet five makes at least the top three on everybody's list. William Hartnell's got to be number one. I knew you were going to say him. That's just because he's old. He's old and he was old in the 60s, which means he's <laughs> even older than you expect We're not him saying to be. Peter Davison. Okay. We're talking about incarnations of the doctor. The man wears cricket whites. <laughs> he could wear anything in the universe. <laughs> Boy, I don't know. Seven because they serve no purpose to him. <laughs> so look at his... His perfect Aryan face. (laughs) All right, now that we've discussed the Church and the Crown, time for some trivia. Marcus Hutton, who plays the Duke of Buckingham, would later play another Duke of Buckingham in a separate Fifth Doctor audio called The Kingmaker. This would be the second Duke of Buckingham, unrelated and separated by nearly a century and a half. Guys, typecast. That is extreme typecasting. (laughs) I only play Dukes of Buckingham in Doctor Who Big Finish audio dramas. (laughs) It's just his like CV all the way down. Headshot, Duke of Buckingham, Duke of Buckingham, Duke of Buckingham. He was also in a porn film entitled Duke of Buckingham. (laughs) Written by Edward Grove and coming out in two years if you'll email me back, Marcus Hutton. When searching his pockets for money, the doctor finds a card labeled MCC. This stands for Mary LeBon Cricket Club, a club in London that has been operating since 1787. I do remember that point and being just like, that's a reference I don't get. Must be something British. Yeah, for anyone in the UK or Europe in general, we don't have that much history over here. (laughs) That's almost as old as our country. (laughs) We're amazed when we stand in a building that's 200 years old. Yeah, or like 50 years old. It's like, oh, oh, it's so old. Ruffet and Delmar mention a previous adventure revolving around the Queen's Diamonds, for which three of their friends received all the glory, a reference to the events of the novel The Three Musketeers. I did catch that. This isn't actually trivia, 
but if you write out Aramim in the right font, it looks a bit like Eminem. <laughs> <laughs> like the rapper or like the rapper. Is the font that you're going with the one that is on that, you know, that album cover? <laughs> no, but it was the one that I used when taking notes. Okay. A little bit of bonus trivia from my addled mind. Well, we appreciate it. All right, that marks the end of this week's edition of The Twin Dilemma. This week, the rebel flesh and the almost people take it over the enemy of the world, proving themselves the superior doppelgangers, a force of flesh ready to take over the world, pounding us into a quivering mass of... (laughs) As soon as you hit force of flesh... You knew where it was going. (laughs) I'm just saying bend to their will now, and they'll use lube. They are very goopy. They can be their own lube. Oh, yeah. I bet they can. That's fucked up. They can probably use the corpses of their dead. Yeah, that's... Oh, premises. God. Well, I've been Edward Grove. <laughs> and I have been Fenric Lamar. And we hope you'll join us next week for more talk about using the corpses of their dead <laughs> for sexual lubricants. I love this podcast. This is the best. Bye, everyone. Bye. Probably forever. <laughs>